you'll open your Bibles now, please, to the 107th Psalm, we'll spend a little time looking at that. One of the great principles of the Bible that we neglect, and we neglect it on a very regular basis, is the fact that Satan is at enmity with God. We neglect that for some whatever reason. I think generally we neglect it because we don't really like to think of anybody hating anyone, and we certainly don't like to think that people that are not born again, who don't understand the covenants and the promises of God, could possibly hate. And yet they are co-working with Satan in their hatred. And we don't like to use the word. Maybe that's the basic reason for our fright or our fear of talking about this very basic thought. People are brought into all sorts of circumstances and as they are, those varying circumstances bring them to realize over and over that Satan is in a hatred war with God and any who trust him. Now in this psalm we find these lovely little departments. It's almost like a sandwich. I would draw your attention in the beginning to the, and I'm using the NIV by the way, I would bring your attention to the first verse. His love endures forever. Then if you'll turn to the 43rd and last verse, you will discover this. Whoever is wise, let him heed these things and consider the great love of the Lord. At the very beginning and at the very end, we read of the love of God. And we read about this love and how it is, ex- it is expressed towards men and women of all sorts and all kinds of experiences. But let's look at some of those experiences. The writer tells us of four that we'll look at. He says there are four basic experiences that men and women go through. In verse 4, we discover the, the, the expression, some have wandered in desert waste lands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They're hungry and they're thirsty and so on. We discover in verse 10 that there are those who dwell in the deepest and the darkest gloom. They, de- they, they, they live in darkness and they live in a dark gloom. We could call those people a depressed people perhaps. Then we read in verse 17 there are those whose, whose whole experience is one of tremendous rebellion, a colossal upheaval against the things of God, against life, against anything and everything that is happening. And then we come to the people in the last illustration that we read about in verse 23, these are the escapists. The escapists. Now a sermon could easily be preached on each one of these areas. Indeed, earlier on in the second area one was such preached. But I would like to share with you an overall pattern of thinking and an overall happening and an overall philosophy of mankind and an overall attitude of mankind towards God. If you look at this, you'll see that the object of the love of God is discovered no matter where we go, no matter who we are, no matter where we may hide or how we may develop our lives, God will approach us and God will confront us and we will have to answer to God. So at the very beginning of the psalm, he says, look, I want you to see 
God's love endures forever. At the very end of the psalm, he says, I want you to understand that this love is the enduring love of God. It is the greatest of all love. Now we confuse the word love. And there isn't time to go into the, this very exactly, but we confuse it in this wise. If we admire someone or admire something, we love it. It shows the English language to be the pauperish thing that it is. It is without good expression. But an interesting thing here is that the psalmist is teaching us a great lesson. He says in the opening of this psalm, let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those he redeemed from the land of the foe, whose he gathered from the lands from the east and west, from north and south. Let, they, let them understand their experience. Whatever your experience, God is going to confront you. Wherever you live, God is going to confront you. Let mankind understand this, that God will reveal his love. The apostle argues in the book of Romans, he says this, he said, people that have never heard the gospel preached have still heard and the proclamation of God. They have seen the sunrise. They have seen the sunset. They have seen God in all his handiwork. But they have taken pieces of wood and they have carved themselves images and they have taken stone and they have chiseled their images and they have made idols. And instead of worshipping the Creator, they have worshipped the Created. Instead of worshipping the one that created the beautiful animals and birds and the creepy crawlies under the earth and in the, in the air, they have caused these creepy crawlies and they have caused these birds and animals to become gods. They have worshipped the created instead of the creator. Yet he says, they are confronted with God. Just as you and I are. Now let's look at this first illustration. It comes from verse 4 and goes on down to verse 9. And in brevity, we read of the waste of life. How it is that these people are nomadic. They are wanderers. They are people that sort of live in the desert wastelands. They find no way into a city where they can settle. They're hungry and they're thirsty and their lives ebbed away. They spend a life looking for somewhere to settle, looking for somewhere to put down their roots. They've spent their whole lives wandering around, people that are nomadic. These people have a tendency to the nomadic wanderings, each man going his own way. Listen to men and women doing this. Here is one of the arguments that such people have. They say there is one God, but there are many ways to that one God. You can get to that God through believing in the occult. You can believe in God in many different ways. You can worship Him in all kinds and manners, and you can still come to the one God. That is to deny the truth. That is to deny the Scripture. That is to deny the will of God. That is to deny the Word of God. That is to deny God. That is to show Satan's hatred towards God. It isn't very simple really. We think it is, but it really isn't because we don't want to be disciplined so that there is one narrow way to bring us to God. We want to feel that in, in our imagination we can imagine any way we like and by that means we can come to God. 
The poet thinks that through his poetry he can reveal God, and indeed he does very often, but in the revelation of God, in the showing of God to people in beautiful verse, surely people will understand he loves God. The organizational genius may say that if we organize everything and we get everything in some sort of motion, surely people will see that we love God. Not really. All people will discover is that we're very busy little people. You can illustrate this from so many aspects. Judas thought that if he could make Jesus, God's only begotten Son, into a political person, why then people would say God had surely come. In other words, Judas was actually helping God. He was saying, God, you really don't know what you've been doing. You brought this Jesus into our midst. You brought this Jesus to do all these miracles, but now we've got to capitalize on it, Lord. We've got to cinch it. We've got to close the deal. Let's make him a politician. Let's make him a king. Let's make him a leader. Let's throw off the shackles of Rome. Jude says this, he says people do this sort of thing because they are short-sighted and they are so short-sighted they, they come into the fellowship with the Lord Jesus and with the saints of the Lord, they come into the assembly a different way than anybody else. They inveigle their way, he uses this expression, they inveigle their way through the back door. They've got other experiences that they claim and so they come into the fellowship because of these other experiences. The way is very narrow. Listen to the arguments of some. They say, well, you know, it's, it, it, you have to realize this, Pastor. We, we don't have to come to God this way or that way. We can come any way, which usually means my way. No, God has said, this is how you come to me. And he has said it very clearly and very plainly. He says, get out of the desert, get out of those frustrating experiences that cause you so much, so much dryness of soul. Get out of those experiences and come unto me. This is how you come unto me, says God. You come by believing that Jesus is my only begotten Son. You believe that he came into the world to die for the sin of the world. You believe him, and in believing him you show that you love me. Jesus said, I and the Father, we are one. If you love me, you love the Father also. If you love me, said Jesus, keep my commandments. And if you love the Father and keep my commandments, you will love the Father and keep his commandments. It's easy to see that, says Jesus, but if you try to bypass Jesus, you have to deal with this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except by me, said Jesus. Now there are people that try to climb up some other way. There are people that try to open another door. There are people who try to create a whole new way to come to God. You may meditate and feel that you are coming to God. You may go into some sort of experience and feel that you're coming to God. Yet God has said there is a new, there is a living way, and we need to come by that way. It's a very sad indictment against our generation. But we have so broadened the way of God, we have so broadened it that it becomes almost of no effect 
unless we're very careful. And the tragedy is that lives are thirsty and lives are hungry and lives are ebbing away and lives are vanishing from the earth and people are seeking the whole time in a desert. They cannot put their roots down into the things of God because they've got so many nomadic wanderings within their hearts. The Bible says this, that there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end of that way that seemeth right is the destruction, and it's a terrifying destruction. It's a destruction that reveals that all one's life has been lived by a continual wandering, a continual looking, a continual grasping. It's a terrifying thing because, says the Scripture, a man this way seemeth right to a man, and at the end of it is destruction. Not the destruction of the system, not the destruction of the philosophy, but the destruction of the man. God made man in his own image. It may be very well, and we obviously know it is, the fallen image, but man is still in the image of God. Satan loves to take that image and destroy it. Satan hasn't the power to destroy it, so he causes, in, in a sense, God to do his own destructive work. He bewilders man, and he causes man by his hatred to turn away from God, to stay in a wandering, nomadic relationship. He causes man to continue in the desert. He causes man to continue wandering. Now what shall happen when this man realizes that the broad way that he is in is ending in distraction, the way that seemeth right to him? Well, when a man sees that his life is ebbing away, that his hunger and thirst is not being met, we read in verse 6, they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and he, the Lord, delivered them in their distress. Maybe you're nomadic. Maybe you're wandering. Maybe you're in a desert place filled with all kinds of frustrations. My dear friend, the cry is to come to God. There is no relief of this in a church, in an organization. There is no relief for this in a religion. It is by coming to God. But let's see the second thing. What is it that depresses people so much? Well, verse 11 tells us, and it starts in verse 10, and the situation that we find in verse 10 is a frightening situation. There are many people that sit down in darkness, and in the deepest gloom, prisoners suffering in iron chains. And the reason, they rebelled against the words of God, and they despised the counsel of the Most High. Rebellion against God brings, and it isn't the only reason, but it brings a great depression. A great depression. And people who are depressed very often are in rebellion. What is it that depresses? Well, one of the answers is this, and it is only one answer. Let me stress that, but it is an answer, and that answer is the rebellion against God. It's curious how we reject the counsel of God, how it is that we, we feel that our way is better than God's way, and we're going to go our way no matter what. We cannot leave things alone because sinful things cannot be left alone. Like a child who has got a toy that you can wind up and then it pitter-patters around the room or does whatever it does. 
The child cannot leave it alone. It keeps playing and playing and winding and winding. And in the end, the, the toy becomes worn. It becomes broken. It becomes discarded. Satan plays with the toys and we're his toys that he often listen to God's word now. Again, this hatred for God shows through. And this hatred for Jesus shows through. God has to subject us to bitter labor. He has to bring us to the place where we stumble and there's no one to help. And then when we suddenly find ourselves stripped and alone, we cry out in our trouble. We are very smart until that time comes. We're very proud until that time comes. Or oh, we talk of humility. We talk of humbling ourselves. But we're very proud until that time comes. Look what I have achieved. We will boast. That is rebellion. I have achieved nothing. Says the book of James, you must understand some things. Don't say that you're going to go into such a town and you're going to have your merchandise and your commerce in such a town and stay there so long, earn so much money and come home again. Don't say things like that. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. So say this. If God will allow me, I will go to such a town. If God will allow me success, I will bring home the proceeds of the commerce that I have enacted. But make sure that you give God the glory is the teaching in that part of James. Make sure that in the common things of this life, in the everyday occurrence of life, make sure that you give God the glory to reject this counsel is to show that you hate God. To hate God shows that you still have a great relationship with Satan. And to have a great relationship with Satan is to reveal more hatred towards God. And so the cycle goes on and on until we thrust ourselves into a place where there is great depression. We are shackled in the bondage of the very life we live and we are sitting down in a most awkward situation. It's well that King David said this, obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience far better than sacrifice. It was one thing for Elijah to stand in front of the prophets of Baal. It was one thing to stand there and to say, let the God of fire be the God. It was one thing to lay out his sacrifice. And it was one thing to see that massive power of God revealed in the fire of God. It was all very dramatic and wonderful. But the minute it was over, Elijah found himself in a great area of depression where he rebelled against God. And that his rebellion was this, that God hadn't destroyed Jezebel, that God hadn't destroyed all of the worshippers of Baal. And he ran away. Now he cries, let us thy servant depart in peace. Now let me die. He would stand in front of thousands of people, make an exhibition of a minimum of 600 of the prophets and priests of Baal, put them to death, and then run from a woman. There was something crazy in the man's thinking at that point. There was some sort of rebellion going on within him. Why had not Jezebel been dealt with? Why had not Ahab been dealt with? Why had not all the perpetrators of this crime against God been dealt with? And there was a great surging within him. Ravens feed him. 
and a brook trickles past to refresh him. And for about three months, he finds God dealing with him in such a way. Obedience before sacrifice. He cries out. He says, look, I'm the only one left. I'm the only person left that loves you, Lord. And all these other people, they don't love you. And God has to take him to task and say, no, you go back and you teach and you preach and you, and you speak for me. There are many yet. Obedience before sacrifice. And with that he works on our souls. Look at the proclamation of verse 15. It comes out when we are obedient, the depression lifts, the rebellion is gone, and we discover that we are loved with an unfailing love. In verse 15 we read these very precious words. Give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. It never falters, never fails. The cruise runs, the brook burbles, the ravens come with their meat. The pot of flour is still with a cake left. And months go by and God's provision is capable. But we have to turn from our hatred of God. And we have to turn to see the unfailing love of God. Look at the third thing. It comes from verse 17 down to verse 22. We want our own way. Oh my, like petulant children, we want our own way. And if it's not so, and if we can't have it, we pout. And look at this, look at the expression, some become, look at the word of verse 17, some become fools. They weren't born that way. They become fools through their rebellious ways and suffered affliction because of their iniquities. They loathed all food. And now he tells us the problem that they had. They felt that they could diet in a certain manner. They drew near to the gates of death. They were foolish. They were foolish. It was an action, a deliberate action. A man becomes a fool because he deliberately acts or does not act because of what he either does or does not do. He deliberately becomes a fool. And so it is with sin. Listen to the Scripture which tells us this and it tells us over and over again in various ways the Scripture is forever telling us these truths that we prefer sin, that we enjoy sin, that we want to sin and we cover it with a cloak of maliciousness. We cover it with, a, with our calling it our faith sometimes. One of the tragic ways that in modern Christendom we have covered our wrongness, we have covered our sin, we have legislated what the Scripture says. We know enough Scripture, but not all. We know some of the counsel of God, but not all. And we listen to other people and we take what they say and then we legislate what it says and what we do. And we become little, little sort of puppets waiting for somebody to jerk the right string so that we can react in the right way. Great tragedy, we become fools. Because we move away from God's Word and we move away from God's leading and that is God's diet for us. So we draw very close to the gates of death. And because of foolishness and because of rebellious ways, we become people who just keep walking on some sort of tightrope or on the very edge of the cliff. 
A friend once said something like this to me as we rode along the, uh, um, a, a pathway that was on the side of a, a cliff. He said, you know, I'm sure that all horses are built with the ability to be suicidal. Why do you say that? He said, just watch our horses. They keep going nearer and nearer to the edge. Why don't they go where it's safe? Why don't they go nearer and nearer to the wall of the mountain? Why do they keep going to the edge? Indeed, the rider found that his leg was hanging over space. The belly of the horse was hanging over in space. And so Christians live day by day by day. The Christian says, I must go to such a place. I must go to a place of gambling and I must stay at a, a sumptuous hotel. The Christian says, I must go to these places so that I understand the world. What foolish expression is that? Do I put my hand in the fire to discover that it burns? Not so. The pain is too great. I whip it away. But somehow we, the Christian feels that there is an immunity. If he, if he wines and dines with the world, he's somehow immune to the world. He will never be so, for he has never been. He has always been caught up, and in his foolishness he has been taken away. He has been taken captive, and he has been led away. See, God's diet is this. He says, my word is meat. He says, my word is bread. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And if I come to the fountainhead, I shall never thirst again. But if I go elsewhere, my thirst is continually unquenched. If I go elsewhere, my hunger is still with me. And after a great sumptuous meal, after a great banquet with the world, I am still left hungry and thirsting after righteousness. I've got my own ideas, I might say, about the things of God. And if I do say such a thing, I find that I'm so near death. And death is so quick to draw near. What shall we say to such people? This is what we say. If you'll look at verse 20 with me. He sent forth his word and healed them. If we back up just a little bit, in verse 19, they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them. The word of God is the healing stream. Now we live in a day where everybody says there's so many good counselors here and there's so many wonderful counselors there and there are so many people that really understand the situation. I don't understand why it is that God isn't sufficient. I can't understand why we deal with anything, anyone less then God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But we do, and we pump up the old ego of those that we talk to, and if they agree with us, we pump our own, and if they disagree with us, we bring in all sorts of fear and trembling. The sons of Zebedee once said to Jesus, these people were doing something in a way we wouldn't do it. Do you want us to call down the fire from heaven? Listen to Jesus, he said to those tomb fellows. He said, you know, you've got a serious problem. You've got a professional spirit. Ye know not what spirit ye are of. Now surely 
they had done the right thing. They were thinking back to the day of Elijah. They were thinking back to the prophets of old. Surely they would have called down fire from heaven. But Jesus told them this, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what spirit is within you. That's not my spirit. And they became fools. They were foolish. But we find in verse 21 here, he says, when they're rescued from the grave, when the word has healed them, and they're rescued from the grave, let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. You want counsel? The best place to ever go is the throne of grace. The best place to ever go is the throne of grace. Oh, but you say, my counsel, what I need is so different. No, my dear friend, God has dealt with sin once and for all, and he has dealt with it wonderfully. He has dealt with it indelibly. He has dealt with it so completely, he can deal with yours. And if you keep arguing the way you are, You'll become like a fool, rebelling at God's counsel. Now we must hurry. We must get into this last area, verse 23. Others went out on the sea in ships. Oh, how I've sometimes longed to sell everything I've got and buy me a yacht. And then to put out to sea and find an island. How often I've thought, how wonderful that would be. I see a crowd of people and I think, oh, how nice it would be on a ship. I could put out to sea and have nothing to do with those people. I would be alone. Alone with God, I tell myself, and I pretend within my heart that's all I need. Oh, any vehicle that removes us from God or any vehicle that removes our need of reliance on God becomes a stumbling block to us. Paul, talking to the church at Rome and in the first chapter and the 16th verse says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God under salvation. He speaks of the salvation and the mighty power that comes from God's word. That's not much use to you in the middle of an ocean. How can you share it? Can you share it with fish? Jonah tried it. The fish swallowed him. He became vomit on a beach. That was the beginning of his life. The power of God is a powerful power. It's beyond the world. A worldly person trifles and takes us from life. The writer here says the merchants in the mighty waters, they see the works of the Lord, but they don't worship God. He says the, the waves look as if they've gone right up to the heavens, and then they, the troughs look as if they've gone right down into the depths. And there's such a, they see such enormous power in the water. You'd think they'd turn to God, but they don't. They see all the wonderful swimming things and all the marvelous creatures of the sea. That surely would turn them to God, but it doesn't. 
It simply doesn't. Look at verse 27. These people that trifle with life get to their wits' end. Ever reach there? Just to their wits' end. Don't know what to do. Don't know which way to go. Don't know how to get there. Don't know where to go from here. What's the procedure from now? When you come to your wits' end, verse 28 tells you the next step in the procedure. There is a procedure that God has. And it's a wondrous one. These people cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He brought them out of their distress. Verse 29, he stilled the storm to a whisper. Peter and John, the other disciples, were in a boat rowing. They didn't want to disturb Jesus who slept at the end of the boat. And they rowed, and they rowed, and the wind was contrary to them. And they rowed, and the waves got bigger, and they started filling the boat. And eventually, one of them in a panic said, Master, don't you care? We perish. And I recommend to every person here who gets at the end of their wits, they come to their wits' end. The cry that must go up is, Master, don't you care? I perish. And he stood in the boat. That in itself was a wondrous task and a wonderful accomplishment. And he said to the wind, Shush! And to the waves, Peace, be still. Shush! And the wind and the waves, they obeyed his will. When he said, Peace, be still. The prophecy here in Psalms of what Jesus did and what Jesus does, for there is no storm too large, there is no experience too horrifying for us to remember that Jesus can stand in the boat in the same experience we're experiencing. And He can say to that mighty wind that is blowing in all directions at once, shush, and He has to shush. He can say to the waves, the things that are threatening to come in and engulf us and overflow us, He can say, now be still, and they are still. You see, we're prisoners to our wastelands. We're prisoners to our massive prairies, to our great wanderings. We are prisoners. We are prisoners to the deep, dark depths of the imprisonments and the chains that hold us. We're, we're imprisoned and we're captivated by our own lack of imagination, by our own lack of understanding God, by our own relationship with Satan. We are so restricted by our foolishness and we suffer so many affliction because of our stubborn iniquitousness by the food we refuse, which is God, given at God's hand, and we become people who are caught, trying to escape. Let me get on the yacht. Let me sail to the sea. Let me have done with the taxes. Let me have done with the people. Let me have done with the circumstances of life. Free me. And so we ply and we row our boat and discover that in the midst of the, of the ocean where we thought we would be so free, the waves are so tall and the depths are so deep that we are threatened to be engulfed. And even there we cry out and we say, God, help me. And he stills the storm with a whis to a whisper. The waves of the sea are hushed. And then we become glad when it grew calm. 
and he guided to the, their desired haven. How precious. But look again at verse 31. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. He is upon us, ladies and gentlemen, with power. With power. A power that we often reject. A power that we often re just refuse. A power that very often we ignore. So let me ask you this. Caught between those two expressions of love, that is, love endures forever, that is, love is never failing, caught between that are four experiences briefly pointed out to you. And in those four experiences, and you identify with them. Have you come to the place where you've cried out? Have you ever come to the place where you've discovered that his unfailing love is your experience this minute? It's there. But if you'll go on with your foolishness, your escapism, if you rely upon your depressiveness, if you'll continue to wander, then gradually you'll starve yourself to death and gradually you'll be engulfed in being far from God. God is the answer. He has made it so easy for us. He has said, you want to see me? Look at my son Jesus. You want to know me? Then look at my son Jesus. You want to see the ex the, uh, an exhibition of my power? Look at my son Jesus. You want to know what I can do for you? Look at my son Jesus. And God says, in effect, you want to know anything about me? Then look at my son Jesus. And Jesus said this, all power is given unto me in the heavens and in the earth and under the earth. All power. All power. All power. That's why it's unfailing love. That's why it's not your admiration for what Jesus achieved or your admiration for what Jesus did, or even your gratitude for who Jesus is. It is quite simply God's unfailing love. Will you let that percolate into your heart? Let's pray. We pray our gracious Lord and Father, that this unfailing love may become a truthful part and parcel of our experience. Deeply and lovingly do we ask of thee that thou would move within our hearts and lives this day, that thou would remind us afresh, without thee we are nothing, without thee we achieve nothing, for thou art altogether lovely, thou art the bright, the morning star, Thou art our Lord, and Thou art our King. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.